It's Tuesday, January 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This past year brought us a lot of awareness of new cancer treatments making a difference in people's lives. The Nobel Prize for Medicine went to a pair of scientists for their work on cancer. The discoveries of Dr. James Allison and Dr. Tatsuko Honjo led to new ways to treat cancer by targeting the body's immune system, rather than the cancerous tumors themselves. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the impact of their work in the fight to cure cancer. Next, one of the more bizarre stories to hit the news. It was a story of 11 malnourished children found in a compound in New Mexico. It was weird to begin with, but then took a turn. According to prosecution documents, the remains of a boy were found, and the man who's at the center of it all was allegedly training one of the children in the use of an assault rifle in preparation for a future school shooting. National security analyst Ryan Morrow joins us for more on this story. Finally, one of the big jerks of the year was a man known as the Dine and Dash Dater. He was finally caught after years on the prowl. Paul Gonzalez would meet women on dating apps, take them out, order a robust dinner, and then leave and never come back, forcing the women to pay a huge bill. Lauren Strapagil, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for how much jail time he is facing and what was in all those dinner orders. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What we did after realizing there were these breaks, we just think about temporarily suspending the breaks, not so much harnessing the immune system, but just unleashing it to attack whatever it was going to attack. We know objectively that we could, for 20-something percent of melanoma patients, basically cure them to the extent that they're going to be around for a decade. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about the Nobel Prize winners that just came out. These were, uh, it was awarded to an American and Japanese scientist for their work on cancer. A lot of people are crediting them with getting us that much closer to the elusive cure for cancer. Their work has kind of just paved the way for this. So there are two immunologists, one from Texas, one from Japan, James P. Allison and Tasuko Honjo. What do we know about them and about their work that they've been doing? Both of them have specialized in immunology, studying the body's immune system. This turned out to be a critical part of what they discovered. And to put it in context, if you think about the mainstays of cancer treatment over the years, things like chemotherapy and radiation, which were effective and are effective in certain situations, but they can also be blunt instruments in the sense that they can destroy healthy cells in the body along with cancer cells. And so that kind of, that causes all sorts of complications. Going back about 15-20 years, there was another advance in cancer treatment, and that was to target genetic mutations in cancer cells. Now, this immune-based approach is sort of the newest wave and one of the more significant approaches to treating cancer in a long time. These two scientists, working separately but in parallel, discovered features about the body's immune system that led them to figure out that if used certain kinds of drugs to target immune system cells in a certain way, it'll basically better equip the, the body's own immune system to go after and destroy cancer cells. So exactly how does it work? I was reading a lot about checkpoints and how a lot of this stuff lets T-cells basically attack the cancer cells. T-cells are a form of white blood cells, and this is where it, the magic really comes through in. I mean, what's so interesting about what they discovered was that the body's immune system has sort of its own natural checkpoints or breaks so that it doesn't go overboard and attack the healthy parts of the body. Cancer cells have basically figured out how to exploit that, and so they, in some way they sort of latch on to the breaks of the body's immune system in 
a way that helps them escape destruction. And so these drugs that have come out of the research from both scientists essentially take the brakes off of the body's own immune system to go after cancer cells in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Some of the drugs that have been able to be developed because of their research, I've seen these like, uh, you know, commercials for these on TV, uh, Keytruda and Opdivo. I think it was former President Jimmy Carter who said that he used Keytruda to treat his melanoma and it worked out very well for him. I think a lot of people have become aware of them through those things, maybe hearing about Jimmy Carter, taking Keytruda. And yes, the TV commercials now are promoting the use of Optivo and Keytruda, I think primarily in lung cancer, because lung cancer is one of the more common types of cancers and and one of the most deadly. These drugs have, have shown some promise. The research still obviously continues. They're finding out that these things help treat those things, but you know it's not a 100% success rate. So the next step is to find out why it works the way it does work and then who would benefit most from it. There's also a cost thing. Some of these immunotherapies can cost upwards of 100 grand per person. So that has to be figured out as well. But Dr. Hanjo himself has even said this is a work in progress. But he, you know, confident in his own work and progress of these treatments, says by the end of the century, cures could be found or, you know, just even more therapies can be developed to help out with this stuff. The studies have shown that as welcome as these drugs are and as much as they represent an advance, each drug alone, I think for the most part, only works in a minority of patients that receive it in these studies. What's striking to doctors about these drugs is that in that minority of patients, it can have a lasting effect. It can yeah. help people live, in some cases, for years. So the trick now is to try to better predict in which patients these drugs will work and by doing things like biopsying the tumors and then also studying different combinations of the drugs to see if like two or three of them together can do better than one alone. And as you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the cost, that approach is going to compound the cost factor in the sense that you have, they're all, each drug alone is relatively expensive. And so combining them is going to be even more of a financial burden. These are effects that we're seeing that uh, from things that they've been doing for eight, eight years beyond that even, you know, longer than that, that they've been looking into this stuff. Specifically, Dr. Allison, the American, he has a very intimate relationship with cancer of family members uh, had cancer. He had a bout with cancer. It's been around him for a long time. His mother died of lymphoma when he was a child and he has he's lost other relatives. And as you mentioned, he's a survivor. And so I think his, his scientific drive, I think, is what he credits as the main as his main interest in this but he also has said that seeing the older treatments that his relatives have gone through and some of the complications was sort of an added motivation for him to find something that might be better. Because these drugs, in addition to their efficacy, in some cases, their side effects aren't as dramatic as chemotherapy, for instance. It's not across the board that they do have some serious adverse events, but I think doctors are trying to learn to anticipate them better and try to mitigate them as much as possible. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. The breaking point for us uh, was last Thursday when a message that we reasonably be believe came from an occupant of the compound or somebody with great knowledge of the compound uh, sent a message saying basically that we are starving and children are starving. Joining us now is Ryan Morrow, national security analyst and Fox News contributor. A story broke where authorities came across a squalid compound. They found 11 malnourished kids. They were ages 1 to 15. 
there was five adults there that they ended up arresting. Now we come to find out that there was the remains of a boy found there. Prosecutors are now saying that one of the adults there was training some of the kids in weapons training for a possible future school shooting. What do we know about all this, Ryan? This is just one of the craziest stories I've seen in recent years. It basically begins with the abduction of a disabled child, a three-year-old boy in Georgia by his father. And then he escapes. They find him at this compound in New Mexico near the border with Colorado, this remote area. And they set up essentially a terrorist training camp. It's an Islamic extremist group. They're acquiring weapons. They're, they have a shooting range, even a 150-foot underground tunnel with a, right. with a hidden escape spot. The authorities know that the fugitive is there. They think the boy's there and all, all this is going on. But the FBI keeps stalling saying they need probable cause to go in, even though part of the compound is on private property, and the owners of that property were like, yeah, come on in, you'll need a search warrant. They just kept delaying, and then finally, last Friday, the police in New Mexico learn of this message that the kids are starving, that they need food and water. And they say, that's it. We're not waiting on the FBI anymore. This is insane. And they went in and did a remarkably dangerous operation that, thank God, somehow did not result in a shootout. And they arrested five adults, rescued 11 kids, and they believe they have found the corpse of the disabled boy. Now we're learning more about the, the broader ramifications of this is that they were training the kids to carry out school shootings. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the boy that was missing uh, was struggled with seizures. He had a birth defect from lack of oxygen and blood flow. The father took him on a walk to a park or something, and then he never returned. You had mentioned that there was a tip that came out from the compound that the kids were hungry. Who provided that tip? Somebody from within the group there? It sounds like someone from within the group somehow, I guess a text message or something, went to people in Georgia saying that they need food. Now, the adults are not cooperating still, so we know it wasn't like they were held against their will. The kids were too young to have those devices, so I guess it was they thought that their communications were secure at that point. And then the New Mexico authorities learned about it, and that's when they undertook this extremely dangerous operation on this 10-acre lot. As for the exorcism, yes, the kid it needed to have his medicine twice a day. The father rejected modern medicine, and that's how you know he's exceptionally radical, because even Al-Qaeda members take medicine. And he said there has to be essentially an exorcism or, or an Islamic prayer to expel the demons responsible for his disability. And it appears to that's the, be the reason. That's why the kid uh, passed away, unfortunately. This compound and these people were on the radar of FBI for quite some time. As you said, there was a, a land dispute. They didn't need a search warrant because people that owned the land said, go ahead and, and, and search. It was a, a, a case where these people that had built a compound built some of it partially on these other people's land. Exactly. And every single person in law enforcement I've told this to, their mouths drop. Even when they raided the camp, some stuff that they should have seized, like a laptop and guns and video cameras, were left behind. And the question out there that we have to ask is whether this boy's death was really inevitable. If the FBI had gone in earlier because they knew since the beginning of the year that they were there, this boy might have been saved. It was not hard for me to get a good idea of how they got the weapons to find indications of financial and identity fraud. If I can put that together as a civilian working for Clarion Project, and that's part of what we do is help the authorities, I can only imagine what resources were available to the feds. Talk to us a little bit about the compound. It's been described as a training camp with a shooting range. 
Neighbors had heard a lot of gunfire consistently over the course of months. The way it was set up didn't seem like the work of amateurs. They had like a tire perimeter and a bunch of stuff. Right. So at first people were making it sound like it was just a crazy guy that abducted his son, found some other crazy people and they were hiding out. And all my sources, including in the Muslim community that know the family, were saying there's just no way that's the case. And it looks like just a heap of garbage. But when you look at it more closely, you see a trailer that's half buried. That's done for tactical purposes. Plastic over it so that nobody could see what was going on the inside. They put shattered glass on the ground and wood with nails so that it makes it hard for people to come up to the compound so that they would hear the noise and then become alerted so they could start opening fire. Tires forming the perimeter, and the kids are just in horrible conditions, but they were shooting up until recently, and the neighbors were saying, yeah, this is bad. It doesn't take much brain work to understand that this is a horrible situation, and those neighbors are some of the bravest people on earth to try to get them evicted. You know there's Islamic extremists on your property with guns <laughs> training for war, right. and you try to get them evicted in court? I mean, that's, <laughs> that is guts. How far away are other properties? What does it look like, the landscape? Well, it's the middle of nowhere. It's at higher altitude, I'm told. The police had no way to surprise them. These guys knew they were coming. Or if they didn't, then there's some genius move on the part of police. The neighbors could see the outer part of the compound. They would even meet the kids. They thought that they saw the missing boy there in January and February. They were close enough that there was interaction and they had good eyes on the site. Obviously not what was going inside and not what was inside the underground tunnel, but enough to know that all this is there. The neighbors are understandably giving quotes out there where they're like, how did this happen? I'm still asking that. I, I don't get it. Ryan Morrow, National Security Analyst, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We ordered a, sa- a salad with shrimp, filet mignon. Yeah, he went all out. Joining us now is Lauren Strapagil, reporter for BuzzFeed News. We're going to be talking about this story. It's kind of a fun one, but it does kind of suck for the people involved. Police have finally caught the man known as the Dine and Dash Dater. What he was doing was asking women out, taking them out for nice dinners, and then leaving them with a bill. And he did this over the course of a few years. What do we know about this guy? His name is Paul Gonzalez, and allegedly what he did, exactly as he said, he would take women out on dates, order a lot of food, a lot of wine, have a really good time, and then suddenly make an excuse and never come back to the table. He met all these women over dating apps, different variety of dating apps. The woman I talked to, Marjorie Moon, was, I think, among the first alleged victims when they met on Plenty of Fish. I was going through some of these stories and seeing what he was ordering with Marjorie Moon. He ordered some wine, a chicken dinner, four lobster tails, and he topped it all off with coffee and chocolate souffle. So he had a big appetite. So what was his excuse to get out of this? In this particular case with Marjorie, he allegedly said he wanted to go get his phone charger from his car. And so she actually waited about five minutes and something fell off and she realized that he just wasn't going to come back. So she checked in with the maitre d' who confirmed that he had left the building. In another case, one of the other women he did this to, he said that he was worried because his aunt was very sick and he was waiting on a phone call from his mom And his phone was dying. So he's like, I got to go to my car and get my car charger. I'll be right back. And even the woman said, oh, what? You're not coming back? And then sadly, that's exactly what happened. And he ditched her with like a $130 bill. 
these are some pretty amateur excuses also for leaving a table, (laughs) but they worked. And yeah, Marjorie, she was left with a $250 bill probably from all those lobster tails. So how did this go, uh, the reporting? Because in one of the cases, the woman said she didn't say anything to the restaurant. She was just more embarrassed than anything else, had hurt her pride mostly. So how did they finally catch up with this guy? So it wasn't just women he was scamming, allegedly. He once, according to police, walked out on the hair appointment with dye still in his hair. Um, <laughs> oh my yeah. Gosh. So, and also into the situations with women, the restaurant ended up footing the bill. Those were the more, I would say, criminal allegations. And I think that's what ultimately got him caught. But actually, so Marjorie, unlike some of the other women, back when she, this happened to her in May of 2016, she posted about it on Facebook and it kind of went viral at the time. That's how the local media got word of this Dine and Dash dater. So other women, as it happened to them, realized that they were part of the same scheme. And so the police ultimately ended up going to Marjorie because she had made that viral Facebook post. And they said that this was going on for years. So I can only imagine that this happened to countless other people that never really reported it or don't want to report it because they might be embarrassed or whatnot. I'm sure it might have even happened more than just that. There are eight women that police know about, but Marjorie even told me, I mean, she was embarrassed. It's an embarrassing thing to have happen. So this happens to you, unless you know that there's some kind of serial situation going on, you might think that maybe the guy just didn't like you, which is really sad because he was just trying to get a free meal, apparently. (laughs) All of these things happen in the Los Angeles area. So what kind of fines, what kind of jail time is he facing as a result of all this? He could be looking at up to 13 years in state prison. He's facing 10 felony charges as well as some misdemeanors. And so the maximum we're looking at is 13 years, but we'll see what charges actually stick. And he has pleaded not guilty and will appear court next month. It's so weird because they mentioned that he defrauded these victims of more than 950 bucks. So yeah, it sucks. I mean, throw the book at him for being a jerk for all these women, but 950 bucks, is that worth 13 years in prison? I think they're holding him on $315,000 bail. It just seems like a little skewed. I'm not defending the guy at all. It just seems a little much for 950 bucks. The more serious allegations are about walking on that haircut and when the restaurants actually had to pay the bill, more so than when these poor women were stuck with the bill. I think it's unlikely that he's going to see 13 years in state prison for all this, but I think something might stick. Right. The official charges are seven counts of extortion, two counts of attempted extortion, and then one count of grand theft. So all those are felonies. I guess that's what trumps up the time in jail and everything. <laughs> it's yeah, just... and again, and that's a maximum. So we'll right, we have exactly. to actually see how it plays out. Oh my gosh. I can't believe this guy. You got to be careful when you meet people on dating apps online and everything like that. You never know what you're getting into. I guess that's part of it. You're trying to meet new people, but there's always people willing to scam somebody. I've seen this before. There was a story, I mean, a few years ago about this blogger, this woman who would meet guys on dating apps just to get a free meal out of it. I mean, she didn't run on the bill. She just let the guy pay. But I think there's probably more than one person out there who's eating very well thanks to dating apps. Right. Well, at least for now, the Dine and Dash dater is has been caught. Lauren Strapagill, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.